Maya goes to church on Sundays and she feels on the spiritual high as she listens to the Bible being taught, as she sings praise, as she spends time with a group of Christian friends. It feels like a spiritual high to her. And then on Monday, she goes to work in the local hospital. On her board, it's constant pressure, it's hard work. And among her work colleagues, well, she's the only Christian. They're nice enough people, but she knows that they despise her Christianity, and so she's always a bit of an outsider. And so even by 10am on Monday, Sunday and church feel like a distant memory. Keeping going through the week is hard work. Is it supposed to be like that? What will keep someone like Maya going? Let's get the answer from Mark chapter 9. Would you turn please to Mark chapter 9, verses 2 to 13. There's a yellow sheet probably on your chair and that's got the page numbers if you've got a church Bible. And it also gives you an idea of how we're going to go about this. If you're not a Christian, please keep listening because the answer that Christians like Maya need for that situation I've just described, is to see who Jesus is and that he is worth keeping on following. And that is just what you need too. To see who Jesus is and that he is worth following. Now, I think it was a year ago that we were going through Mark's Gospel. It's certainly roughly something like a year ago. We were going through Mark and we got to chapter 8, verse, well, halfway through chapter 8 we got to. Last week we restarted the series with the idea being that we're going to go carry on and into next year, apart from a little Christmas break. And we restarted from chapter 8, verse 27 onwards, last Sunday. Now, in this series, both a year ago and now that we're picking it up, we're aiming to, in a sense, do two things. One of them is to give Mark's clear message that demands your response. So one aim is that each Sunday you go away knowing, this is what God's word has said to me, this is what I must do about it, and that you do it. But at the same time, we're aiming to model to you how to get the meaning out of the Bible. How to read out of it what it's actually saying, rather than read into it our own ideas. So often we do that. We read into it our own ideas. We want to model to you, no reading out of it, what God is really saying. And I want us to get those two aims by doing two things this morning. I've got a simple structure, you'll see on the yellow sheet. First, to follow through the story, and then, secondly, to learn its lesson. So we're going to spend quite a while just working through the passage, bit by bit as it goes along, Bible study-like. And then secondly, more briefly, have you got the main message? Let's try to get that home so we go and do it. So first of all, following the story, we have got to chapter 9, verses 2 to 13. But we need to see how that section fits in, why it's here, by looking at what comes before. So we're going to work our way through now. We need to start back in chapter 8, verse 14 to 21. I'm not going to read it, I'll describe it, and in your own time, if you want to check, you can read it and see I am properly representing it. 
Chapter 8, verse 14 to 21. For a couple of years, the disciples of Jesus have been going about with Jesus. They've been listening to him. They've been watching him. But are they actually seeing him? Listening, watching, but are they seeing? Because sadly, Jesus has to say to them, verse 18, chapter 8, verse 18. Do you have eyes but fail to see? He said that because they were clearly not getting yet who he was. After two years of listening and looking, they still weren't seeing who he was. How will they ever see? It's as if they're blind. Well, the answer to how they will see is demonstrated by Jesus in verses 22 to 26. Jesus shows he is the one who opens our eyes to who he is and he shows it by doing exactly that for a blind man. There's a man here who's blind and Jesus, like so often in the Gospels, does a miracle and the blind man can see. But there is an oddity about this miracle. Do you know what's odd about it? It looks like it takes Jesus two attempts to heal him. At first, the man says, oh yes, I can see. I can see people and they look like walking trees. In other words, he got some vision, but it was pretty fuzzy. What's going on? Has Jesus failed and he needs a second attempt? Well, if you know the Gospels, you know, of course not. Jesus' miracles were always successful. He clearly must be teaching something. And what he's teaching is that opening our eyes to who he is doesn't always happen in one quick go. And you can see that in his apostle Peter as we move on to verse 27 to 9 verse 1. Here's the apostle Peter and his eyes are going to be opened but it won't happen in one quick go. So in verses 27 to 30, Peter at last says to Jesus, you're the Christ. In other words, you're the Messiah. In other words, you are the saviour king that God has throughout our history been promising. At last, Peter is seeing who Jesus is. And yet, his eyesight still needs some work on it. Like that half-healed man, there's still something wrong with Peter's eyesight because he says, Jesus, you are the Christ, and then he acts in total contradiction to that. Because when Jesus says, in verse 31, that he must suffer, be killed and rise, Peter says, no way, Jesus, no way, you've got it wrong. In fact, it says he gives Jesus a telling off. Because he says the Christ, that's not what happens to the Christ. That's not what the Messiah is like. He's seen that Jesus is the Messiah, but he hasn't seen what the Messiah is like. His eyesight is still very fuzzy. And so Jesus insists, not only will he, the Messiah, suffer, die and rise, but if we are going to have eternal life from him... We must follow him, his way, his pattern. And Jesus calls that taking up your cross, denying yourself and following him. 
Now, that was, the, that was the subject of last week's sermon. So I'm not going to go over all that again. But just to say, what does Jesus mean by denying yourself and carrying your cross? He means things like this. If obeying Jesus clashes with your plans for your life, you obey Jesus and die to your plans. If obeying Jesus means a work colleague thinks you're crazy, you obey Jesus and die to promoting your reputation. If obeying Jesus harms your career prospects, you obey Jesus and die to your career ambitions. If Surely if Peter had seen and if we have seen who Jesus is, the Christ, we say, well, following him comes before all else. And where does a clash? I die to those other things because I'm dying to self and living for him. The disciples' eyesight is being improved a little, but there's still, there's still some fuzziness. They still need some improvement. And so we get the same lesson again, really, in chapter 9, verse 2 to 8. So we're moving into our section for this morning, and it's really the same lesson again. Now, children, I wonder, at school, are you told to present your work neatly and carefully? I expect you are, aren't you? Because it's not just content that matters, how things look affect people. If you go into a restaurant, however good the food, if the waiter is scruffy and the room looks shabby, it's going to put you off. However good the food might be, we are affected by looks. And God knows that. And so he helps these disciples. They've seen Jesus looking like just an ordinary, weak, poor carpenter. They're going to see Jesus looking like a disgraced failure hanging on a cross. So now, God helps them. Because we are affected by how things look. And they get to see that Jesus isn't just an ordinary human. Verse 2 and 3. Mark 9, verse 2 and 3. After six days, Jesus, uh, Jesus took Peter, James and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. They see something of God's glory shining out of him. They see this is not just an ordinary human. Across the Old Testament, God's glory had been described in terms of brightness and they see the brightness of the glory of God shining out of a human being. What else do they see? Verse 4. They see two men. Somehow they know who these men are. Elijah and Moses. What are they doing there? Well, Moses represents the law of God. Elijah represents the prophets. Back then, they didn't call, we call the first half of our Bible the Old Testament. They didn't call it that, they called it the law and the prophets. And they're being told, yes, Jesus is the Christ. Peter has got it right, Jesus is the Christ. He's the one all the law and the prophets were pointing to. But there's more going on here. There's some cultural pointers we might not get, but they would. Culture works like that. Think of this. Do you remember first lockdown 2020? And the Queen gave a speech to the nation and towards the end, do you remember what she said? She said, we'll meet again. 
Why did she choose those words? Why did they then show, projected onto Buckingham Palace, a black and white film of someone singing, We'll Meet Again? Well, English people, at least the older ones, would get the cultural pointers. She was making them think of the British wartime spirit. She was referring back to a World War II song. People tend to recognise the pointers back to their culture's history. Now, Peter, James and John were Jewish. And there were some cultural pointers back to their history here. What would they think of? They are up a mountain. There's the bright shining glory of God. There is a cloud comes over them. There is a voice from God out of the cloud. Do you know what they would be thinking of? There's some others that are less obvious to us, like verse 14, coming down from the mountain to a crowd and trouble. Like verse 2, Mark is being very deliberate when he says after six days. Because back in their Jewish history, When the Israelites were escaping from Egypt, there was a six-day preparation for a time when God revealed himself on a mountain, in a cloud, with bright shining glory, with a voice, as he freed them from Egypt and then led them to the promised land. And so this event is saying, Jesus is God become man. He is that same God become man. He will give you freedom. He will lead you to the promised land of eternal life. But there's something else they need to remember. Think back, if you know the story of the Israelites being freed from Egypt, led to the promised land, what had to happen in between? At Mount Sinai... God revealed himself to them so they would obey him and follow him through difficulty and trouble until they reached the promised land. It is no coincidence that Jesus has just in chapter 8 said, if you're going to have eternal life from me, first of all you've got to carry a cross, deny yourself, give up your life to gain eternal life. Do you see how this is all fitting together? But the disciples' eyesight was still dodgy and they still weren't getting it. Even Peter, who'd made that great declaration, you are the Christ. He's so quick to speak. He just has to say something, blurt something out, and his words give away he's getting it wrong. Have a look at his words in verse 5 and 6. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, It's good for us to be here. Let's put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say. They were so frightened. And you don't blame him, do you? It must have been frightening. But Peter has to blurt out something. He can't keep quiet. And it gives away he's got it wrong. What was wrong with what he said? Two things. One, he still hadn't got quite who Jesus is. He still wasn't rightly seeing the uniqueness of Jesus. So in verse 5 he says, let's have three shelters, Moses, Elijah, Jesus, as if they're all on a level. God says, verse 7, this one is my son. The other two aren't. No, this one, Jesus, is my son. He is unique. Don't put him on a level even with Moses and Elijah. 
Peter, you still need your eyesight improved to see better who Jesus is. And he still needed his hearing improved. His hearing improved. Do you see in verse 7, this is my son whom I love, listen to him. Listen to him. You see, Peter in verse 5 had said, it's good being on this mountain. Wow, what a wonderful spiritual experience this is. Let's put up shelters. Why do you put up shelters if you're going to stick around? Putting up shelters implies let's stay around here. But God says, listen to what my son has just told you. Listen to what my son has just told you, Peter. His way is not sitting on a mountain enjoying a spiritual high. His way is the way of the cross. His way is the way of following him in self-denial in a troubled world. Weren't you listening, Peter? This one is the son I love. Listen to what he's told you. Now is not the time for settling on the mountaintop. Get down from the mountain and get on with it. And so down the mountain they go. Let's move on to verses 9 to 13. Down the mountain they go. Can you picture them? Have you been down a mountain? Lake District, Scotland, Wales. I don't know if Middle Eastern mountains look much like that. But picture them walking down the mountain. And they're talking excitedly as they go down the stony path about this new discovery. Oh, they say, so Jesus really is the Messiah. They say to each other, we are living at the time of prophecy fulfilment. God has given us to live at the most exciting time of history. Wow. Then they say, hang on, hang on. Don't the prophets say that Elijah must come back before the Messiah comes? Now how does that fit in? We've just seen Elijah, but that was just for half an hour. So how does that fit in if Elijah's going to come back before the Christ, but we don't think he has come back, and here is the Christ walking down the mountain with us. We're a bit confused. And so Jesus answers them in verses 12 and 13. And his answer tells them two things. First, yes, Elijah has come back. Uh, This is where it's a difficulty that we're a year on from starting going through Mark, because Mark chapter 1 begins by saying John the Baptist was like a second Elijah. So Jesus says, yes, he has come back. John the Baptist was like a second Elijah. Prophecies are being fulfilled. I am the Christ. But also, yet again, he says, get your expectations right. I am the Christ, but I am going to have to suffer. And everyone associated with the Christ has to expect to suffer. Do you see, it's just the same two lessons again. Who the Christ is and expect to suffer as you follow him. Well, just very briefly, I'll point out that verses 14 to 32, they come down from the mountain. And like Moses coming down from Mount Sinai, straight away they meet a crowd and they meet trouble. And they're facing evil in this world. There's a boy possessed by an evil spirit. It causes immense trouble to him and his family. And there's distress, evil, suffering. That's what this world is like. And they come down from the mountain and straight away they hit it. But Jesus gets rid of the evil spirits. And it's the same lessons all over again. 
The same two. First of all, who Jesus is. He has power over evil. And he's able to give life. He raises to life someone who was like the walking dead. But they're also being taught again, there is work to do. You can't stay on the mountaintop. There's a troubled world to help. There's confronting evil to be done. And that requires the hard work of persistent prayer, Jesus tells them in verse 29. It requires you to work at it, persist, pray, maybe even fast. And it also requires Jesus to suffer, die and rise again. He tells them yet again in verse 31. And sadly, yet again in verse 32, they're still not getting it. Still not getting the lesson. Children, have you learnt to ride a bike? That's a good skill to have. Have you learnt to ride a bike? Sit on the saddle, push the pedals, grip the handlebars and fall off. And you get up and try again and fall off and you get up. And then a point comes where you've got it and you can ride the bike. And the next day you get on and you've got it. And a year later you get on and it's one of those skills, once you've got it, you never lose it. In fact, once you've got it, you wonder how you ever fell off. Because once you can ride a bike, you can ride a bike. And that's that. You don't have to keep relearning. Following Jesus is not like that. Following Jesus isn't one of those things where once you've got it, that's that. That's that and you can just sit on it and you've got it. And you can come back to it a year later and you've got it. No. That's why we've just worked through this long section to see the disciples keep needing the same lesson. Who Jesus is, now get on and follow him. He is the Christ, pick up your cross and follow him. And we, like them, keep needing our eyesight improved to see who he is. We keep needing to learn following Jesus isn't sitting on a mountaintop having a great spiritual experience. It's carrying a cross and denying self. Okay, we've just gone through the story, following the story, now, more briefly, learning the lesson. Let's make sure we've got the lesson. What is the lesson? Here it is. Take notice of the mountaintop, but then come down into the cross-carrying valleys. You got that? That's the lesson. Take notice of the mountaintop, but then you've got to come down into the cross-carrying valleys. The disciples needed the mountaintop experience. They needed to be confident in who Jesus is. But then they're told, don't settle here. No, don't put up shelters. Listen to Jesus and go and follow him, denying yourself and carrying your cross. What does it mean to take notice of the mountaintop experience? You know, I'm, I'm talking in picture language, aren't I? So what does it mean? For us, it is believe the historical record. The Bible doesn't say we are to expect to go and physically see the glory of God shining out of Jesus. No, it says, look, that happened to these disciples. They've written it down. They've recorded it. Believe the historical evidence. Years later, that same Apostle Peter was writing to Christians who he was calling to follow Jesus in a very anti-Christian society. He was calling them to carry their cross in a society that would make it hard. And he tells them what he saw on the mountaintop. 
He tells them about Jesus shining with the glory of God, not to say, now you have the same experience, but to say, look, that's historical evidence. You can be confident in who Jesus is. He's God and man. So follow him in a society that makes it hard. Peter also said to them, you've not seen Jesus like that, but even though you've not seen him, you believe the historical evidence and you have this mountaintop experience. You love him. You are full of joy and you worship because of him. So take notice of the mountaintop, but then come down into the cross-carrying valleys. Peter wanted to settle up there. It was such an amazing experience. And God said, listen to my son. He told you to carry your cross, to deny yourself and to follow him. There's the lesson. I hope the lesson has been clear. Let me try to reinforce that by giving some examples. Here's some examples for you. Students. Students, you have your equip meetings. I think I've got the name right. Equip meetings. You come to church. I hope you read your Bibles and pray. I hope you have some mountaintop experiences of seeing. It's true. The, the history is solid. Jesus is the Christ and being amazed at him. But then, then you need to get out and mix with non-Christians. And be clear and public Christians, whatever they may think of you. The point of your equip meetings and coming here is not to give you a nice, comfortable group of Christian friends just for your enjoyment. The point is so you follow Jesus clearly and openly, whatever the cost. Those who are not Christians, I expect we can see how we've got parallel ways we should be doing that. Another example, the three who were baptised this week, who I think are all here this morning. What a joyful occasion two weeks ago. Over 300 people here. Baptisms. But it's not to stop there. It's to lead to a life where not just the crowd on a Sunday, but the people around, two of you at school and one of you at university, notice that you're different. That you follow Jesus even though it costs you. The rest of us who are not those three, I expect we can see some parallel ways that applies to us. Another example, mothers, mothers, when you're looking after young children, it can be difficult to do this, but try to get time seeing who Jesus is. Try to get time when you can focus on the beauty of the self-giving saviour and then do it with this purpose. So that as you care for your children, you are following him. Others don't see it. Our society doesn't properly value it. But isn't that just like Jesus carrying the cross, denying self, as you work at looking after your children and doing so with the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, self-control? The rest of us who are not mothers with young children, I expect we can see parallels for us. What about us as a church? What about Hollywell? I hope our Sunday gatherings are in some way like the mountaintop experience. It doesn't depend really on how we feel, but feelings are good. But it really depends on this. I hope they are times when we see who Jesus is. 
when we're confident in the historical record, but I hope also there are times we enjoy worshipping as he is with us. But the disciples had to come down from the mountaintop into a needy and evil world where they must work at helping that world. They had to do, verse 29 says, the hard work of persistent prayer because it's a troubled world that needs disciples doing that. So I think that this big crowd, which I'm very grateful for, on a Sunday morning has quite a question mark hanging over it. How meaningful is it if it doesn't result in a church that values and works at doing battle against evil? As we get together to pray for the spread of God's kingdom and the success of the gospel because we're in a needy world that requires disciples who do the hard work of persistent prayer. How meaningful is the big crowd if it doesn't result in a church like that? The disciples had the mountaintop experience of seeing who Jesus is, but it was so they would come down and do the hard work of helping a world afflicted by evil. Some people take drugs to make themselves feel better. Some see a therapist to make themselves feel better. Some watch feel-good films to make them feel better. Some treat Jesus as a drug, all about making them feel better whether that's by a worship experience or by the mental stimulation of a good doctrinal discussion. By the way, they're both good things, but they're not supposed to be just like a drug to make us feel better. The point is to get us carrying our cross. In what way are you denying yourself for a world that is in need? Seeing Jesus must drive us into active concern for lost people around us who don't know Christ, for the millions in Central Asia and Africa and secular Europe who haven't heard the gospel. Are you seeing who Jesus is? Have you looked into the historical evidence and seen who Jesus is? Has the Holy Spirit shown you the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and made you love him? Remember the purpose. God said, this is my son whom I love, listen to him. And the son said, now pick up your cross, deny yourself and follow me. So now we need to come down from the mountaintop into Monday to Saturday, whatever Monday to Saturday are for you, and follow him. Let's pray for that. Father, please show us Christ, as we sung earlier on. Show us Christ. Give us firm faith that that the historical man, Jesus, is the Christ, is the Saviour King, is, is the glorious God the Son, is the one who rose from the dead and gives eternal life, and so make us cross carriers. Make us people who don't treat Jesus as our therapist, but as our leader, as our pioneer. And so this week and each week, we take up our cross, we deny ourselves, we work hard for a world in need. Please make us real followers of Christ. We ask in his name. Amen.